All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord's guidance on our study. Our Father, we are indeed so very grateful for all that you've provided for us, what you have revealed to us in your, in your word. For it is in the light of your word, as the psalmist says, that we see light. It is your light that illuminates our understanding, our thinking, so that we can make wise decisions, so that we can come to understand the real issues in life, and we can think about what we face in life in terms of what you have revealed to us. And as we learn the episodes and circumstances and situations of those revealed in the Scripture, they help us to think through uh, the problems, the challenges they faced, and what principles are being, uh, are, are being illuminated for our application. Father, we pray as we study today, you'd help us to understand this important passage and its implication for our thinking and our understanding and our priorities. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in John chapter 20 today, John, or John 21. And in this passage, we're going to see the third appearance, the third resurrection appearance, post-resurrection appearance of our Lord to his disciples. The first time he appeared to the disciples, there were only 10 of them. Thomas was absent. That was on the day day of the resurrection itself. Then he appeared later to the disciples one week later. So seven days has gone by. One week later, he appears to uh, the eleven. Now Thomas is present. We studied that last time. The scene where uh, Thomas has said after hearing the other disciples had seen the resurrection Lord that he said, I'm not going to believe it until I can put my fingers into the nail prints and uh, into a side. And of course the Lord appeared and said, okay, put your fingers into the wounds. You test it out for yourself. I'm raised. And he said, my Lord and my God. This the resurrection was the eighth sign. And so those are the two appearances. Then a week goes, another, well, maybe um, another week or so goes by before this event occurs, which is the third appearance. We don't know exactly how long it went, but, but it seems that uh, it would have taken the disciples uh, three days at least to have made it up north to Galilee, so that would put it in the middle of the week, Tuesday at the earliest, Wednesday, Thursday, and it almost seems as if they're getting a little bored waiting for the Lord, and when Peter says that he wants to go fishing, maybe it's motivated by a need to uh, get back into business, get some get some uh, operating capital. Uh, we don't really know the text doesn't bring out those things because it's not important. What is important is the lesson that is being taught here. Jesus is going to appear on the scene, and after the disciples have had a frustrating night of not catching anything, I can relate to that. You go fishing with me, you will not catch anything. Maybe you will, but I won't. I I have a consistent record. When I go fishing, I don't catch anything. I have a friend of mine I've known since college. He's got a bass boat. He goes fishing all the time. He knows where to fish. When we go together, he might catch one, which is really embarrassing for him. I will not catch anything. I figure, okay, I'm going to go with somebody who's really good. So maybe that's a prerequisite for being a disciple is you can't catch fish because... The only time the disciples caught fish in their whole career 
was when Jesus showed up. It sort of makes you wonder how successful they were before the Lord showed up. Anyway, the point in all of this is that Jesus is going to be on the shore and he will tell them to cast their nets on the right side of the boat. That's because people are truly fed by the right. I just had to make that (laughs) implication there. Even though the left wants to give it all away, that doesn't truly feed people. Anyway, I, I couldn't avoid that. So he had to cast the net onto the right side uh, of the ship, and they brought in just an incredible load of fish. But that's not the point. The point is when they come to shore, Jesus is going to have a fire going. There's already fish there. It's not one that they caught, and then he, because then he tells them to bring the load of fish onto the shore. And then Jesus feeds them. That's the point. Jesus feeds them, and that transitions into this conversation that Jesus has with uh, Peter. Uh, Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Jesus has just shown that he is the one who will feed them and is sufficient to provide their, their, their physical needs as well as their spiritual needs. Now he uses that to teach that that is their priority is going to be to feed the sheep. That's the connection. What's interesting is, as I've studied, this is one of my favorite passages to both study and to teach, because for one reason, it's the primary reason is it really shows the priority for the ministry of the apostles and, by extension, the ministry of the pastor-teacher to feed the sheep. But second, because it's one of those passages where very few commentators, I've heard a lot of preachers get it right, but in the commentaries, I see very few that really make these kinds of connections. They treat uh, the, those, those first, what is it, the first 14 verses as one episode, and then the next one as a separate, and they, they botch that because of the way it's set up. But we'll get to that. So Jesus is teaching in this that the priority for the church, the priority for the leaders in the church, the pastor, the priority for the apostles was to feed my sheep. Now, as we saw last time, John is organized, the gospel is organized around eight different signs, signs that demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. He changes the water into wine. He heals the nobleman's son from a distance. There's the healing at uh, Bethsaida, there's feeding of the 5,000, there's the walking on the water, the healing of the man born blind, the raising of Lazarus, and then the eighth and final sign is his own resurrection. Those signs then, as I pointed out last time, form the structure and the argument that John is laying out here. And then we told, we're told at the end of chapter 20, in a summary statement, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So they're signs that were done prior to the crucifixion during the period of his ministry, but also signs that are done after the events of John 21, because remember what we're told by John is that the appearance of Jesus to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee is his third appearance, post-resurrection appearance. So the first one we know about, that's when he appeared in the room and there were only 10 of them. Then he appeared one week later, so no more appearances during that that one week. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He showed up the next Sunday, that's when uh, he confronted uh, Thomas. And then they finally left and did what he had originally told them to do, and that is to go to Galilee, where he said he would he would meet them. I believe he did other things after that as well. And this is John's summary. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, and that word these refers to the signs. See, it's truly Jesus did many other signs, but these are written. That is, these eight that he's drawn from, of all the many that Jesus did, are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is, he is the Messiah. He fulfills those signs of these miracles that Jesus performed, uh, healing a leper, 
uh, healing certain diseases, giving sight to the blind, and raising someone from the dead were signs that the rabbis during the period of the Second Temple stated would be the indisputable evidences of the presence of the Messiah. And yet when he showed up and did these things, they rejected them. And the point is that no matter how many miracles Jesus could perform, if you're not interested in learning about God or in learning about salvation, you will reject them as the truth. Because the issue isn't miracles. One reason I point that out is you often hear people make statements along the lines that if Jesus would just appear and do X, Y, or Z, then my friends, my family, my whoever would finally believe. And what the scriptures articulate so clearly is the statement of Abraham in Luke 16 to the the rich man who is in torments. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe someone who rose from the dead. The signs are will convince those who are positive, but not those who are negative. And uh, but they demonstrate they're not proofs. They demonstrate that Jesus is who He claimed to be, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. It's not by believing plus anything. That's the simplicity of the gospel. And I believe it is so simple because sin is so complex and the consequences of sin are so complex that for human beings to think that there's anything they can do to contribute to the process of their salvation is indeed arrogance. It minimizes what sin is and what it has done, and it maximizes, uh, in many ways, human ability and human goodness. So we're then told that after... These things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberias was a Roman city that is located uh, south of where these events took place. It was not a place where Jesus went during his uh, incarnation, and it was not, uh, Jews did not frequent it, but because of its presence, the Sea of Galilee was often called the Sea of Tiberias. Actually, it's not a sea. It's a lake. The Greek word thalasso can refer to either a freshwater lake or a saltwater sea. And so uh, it was mistranslated by the early uh, King James translators in earlier English Bibles as a sea, but it is, uh, it's called Lake Kinnereth in Hebrew today or Gennesaret. And this is, uh, if you look here on the picture that I have, it is uh, up in this area right here, which is where there is a kibbutz called Nafginasar, which is one place we stay on the Israel trip. So he goes, he's going to show that, and this is how it happens. Um, when it says, after, and in this way he showed himself, that is a translation of the same word that we have in John 3.16. John 3.16 says, for God, it's translated, for God so loved the world But the word that is translated so is the same word here that is translated in this way. That's what it means. That God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son. So it's translated, that word is translated correctly here, and it introduces what will take place. So we read in verse 2 about Simon Peter, Thomas called uh, the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. Nathaniel hasn't been on the scene since John chapter 1 when uh, Jesus uh, talked to him. Uh, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and then two others who are unnamed. That's typical of John not to uh, name all the disciples who are present. And then Peter says to them, I'm going fishing. Now remember, this is a commercial enterprise, and they had a large enough vessel to where they could... Uh, at least get as many as this text indicates, 153 fish. That is a large supply of fish, and so that that was their commercial business. So they say, we'll come with you. Remember, James and John were also in business with Peter and Andrew, his brother. And so they got in the boat, and they went out at night. It's better to fish at night. The fish are feeding, especially if there's a, a full moon or a waning moon, and... Also, um, 
then in the morning you have fresh fish that you can take to market and sell. But they didn't catch anything. And as the dawn came, the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, and they did not know that it was Jesus. Now, I use this picture, it's a little dark, but on the boat here, when I took the picture, I was about uh, 100 yards off the shore. So if somebody is standing there, you really don't see them very well. You cannot make out features enough to necessarily identify someone. But it's also interesting that in Jesus' resurrection body, every time he shows up, he's not immediately recognized. So a number of uh, people have observed that it appears there may be something about the resurrection body that is enough different to where it's not may not be immediately recognizable, but there's enough similarity to where it is. It can also be that there, the identity is being, and this happened earlier, that Jesus' identity is being cloaked by God so they don't see him. But the text doesn't make an issue out of any, any of those things. It just says they didn't realize who it was. And I think that it's easier just to take the simplest explanation that Jesus is 100 yards away and they they just see a man there. They're not sure who it is at that point. And Jesus said to them, begins to question them, Do you, ha- you have you any fish? And they said, no. Now what they would do, they had a couple of different ways. They had smaller nets, but they also had these larger nets. And I got a series of shots here uh, out on one of the boats that they have for tourists in the Sea of Galilee. And what they do is they take these nets and they have them, they're weighted at the bottom, and they fold them a particular way. And then as he puts it over his arm, he throws it out like you'd be throwing a Frisbee. And as he throws it out, let's see, you can see just the vague outline, see how it opens up. All the way around here is the the shadow of the, the white net that goes out. So as he throws it like a frisbee, it just spreads out into a huge circle and then it's weighted so it drops down and then it will uh, capture any fish that are under it and then he pulls it back in uh, to the vessel. So this would be the kind of net they were using in this scene. They used another net that they would drag behind the vessel, but the language here doesn't uh, support that because uh, they've been fishing on one side of the boat, and Jesus is going to say, uh, cast it on the right side of the boat. In verse 6, he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Now, some people say that, well, because of the light refraction where Jesus was standing, he could see uh, what they could not see, that there were fish on that side. I think that minimizes the supernatural reality that's going on here. A, Jesus is omniscient. B, Jesus is the sustainer. Uh, C, Jesus is the creator, and he's omniscient. He knows where the fish are, and he had those 153 fish there for a reason. He's in control of this situation because he has an important lesson to teach the disciples uh, at this point. So at that point, they cast, and they were able to draw it in. They were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. So it, it, it's at capacity. We're told later it doesn't tear the net, but it's, it's at capacity. So once this happens, we see a... I think there's some little differences that are brought out between... John and Peter, we see the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's a reference to John, and he says to Peter, it's the Lord. John has a little more spiritual discernment, he's a little quicker on it than Peter is, and then we're going to see Peter's response. But I want to stop a second, that when you read through John, one of the things that always has impressed me, and it does in this whole episode, all the way down to the end of the gospel, is that John is writing this when he's around 85 or 90 years of age. He's writing this somewhere uh, near the end of the century. Some people say he wrote it before he wrote Revelation. Some people say afterward, we're not sure. But what we are sure of is that this is his mature reflection on Jesus' ministry and teaching. 
he's had he's had about 60 years to think about what Jesus taught and he's been teaching this as part of his ministry as an apostle and remembering what Jesus taught and so when he writes this down it's it's interesting to think about his thoughts some 60 years later as Jesus is teaching them to feed the sheep and his 60 years of ministry as an apostle feeding the sheep and seeing what has happened during that period of time because not only was there the enormous expansion of the church in response to the gospel on the day of Pentecost and the immediate weeks after that that are described in in the first uh, five or six chapters of Acts, but also the expansion of the church because in his later ministry, John is in Ephesus. He's the pastor of one of the congregations in Ephesus, just as Paul had been there before, as Timothy was there and others had, had pastored. And now he is uh, either, he could have written this when he's on the Isle of Patmos, he's along with Revelation, he could have written it afterward or before, but but it he knows what to focus on, first of all, because he's under uh, guidance by God the Holy Spirit, but also because of how he has thought this through and seen it work itself out. So he's he understands in a richer way the implications of what Jesus is saying than he did when Jesus said it. So he understands who Jesus is, identifies him, and when Peter Peter hears, he's always the impetuous one, the man of action, and says that he put on his outer garment. So he would have stripped down, not naked, but he would have stripped down to just his basic uh, undergarments to have freedom of movement on the uh, as he's throwing out the nets and fishing. And then it says he put on his outer garment. Literally, this the word means to tuck it in. So he takes the outer garment and he girds it. Uh, the King James translates it that way. Some of the older versions do well. He's, which means he's gathering it up and he's tying it together and tucking it in so it doesn't uh, get in the way or get weighted down and hinder his his swimming into the shore. So he's got about a hundred yards to go, and I'm not exactly sure where they were or what the uh, what the uh, depth was, but I know when we go to Nof Ginnasar, they have a beach there, and that's not very far from this area, that it's shallow for a long ways out. We've gotten to the point where when we go to Israel, we do a, our baptisms there. They have a touristy place for baptisms down on the south end of the Sea of Galilee, and it's real kitschy. You know, I just don't like going there and taking people there. Some of you have been there with me and been baptized there. But a couple of years ago when we started staying, or a couple of trips back when we started staying at Nafginnasar, they have a nice beach. The trouble is it's shallow. You have to walk out about 50 yards before you have enough depth to be able to baptize people. So it's a great place for swimming. Uh, but but not necessarily for baptizing. But it's because it's hard to preach the gospel. I do it for, at the beach and then take people out, but it's hard to be heard when you're that far out. Anyway, so I think that what we see here, and also it's pictured in this, this picture, which is taken in the area. It's now called Tabga, which is a, based on an Arab word for these hot, there's some warm water that comes out from some springs in that area. And it's a very popular place to go fishing because as the warm water comes out, it, because of the underwater vegetation that grows there, I mean, it's not hot water, but it's warmer water, that this is a place where the fish will come to feed. And so this is a place where the fishermen will come, come to fish. So at this location, um, it would have been shallow, so I imagine that Peter didn't have far to swim before he could stand up and start uh, running into shore. The other disciples came in the little boat and dragging the net behind them. So this would have been quite heavy. I don't know how large these fish were, but it was enough to strain the capacity of the net. 
And then we're told that as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. So Jesus has already made breakfast for everybody. And he, where the fish came from, we don't know, but I'm sure that he could make that appear miraculously. Who knows how he uh, did all of that, but the meal is already prepared for them. And I think the implication as a lesson is that God has already prepared for us all that we need for our spiritual nourishment. Jesus has provided that for them. And he is teaching them, going to use this to teach them about how they are to uh, feed the sheep just as he is uh, providing for them and feeding them. Then he tells them to bring some of the fish that they have just caught. Now, I cannot help but read this and think about what's recorded in Matthew and Luke, that when Jesus called his disciples at the beginning, he said, I will make you fishers of men. So there are many times in the Gospels where there are uh, things that are said in relation to the the role of a disciple, making a disciple, and its relationship to, to fishing. Verse 11, Peter goes up, not necessarily alone, but they're having, the other disciples are struggling with it. You get the idea that Peter is, is strong and he goes and with his help, now they're able to more uh, efficiently, more easily drag the net to the land. It's filled with large fish, 153. It's interesting whenever you have a number like that, that there's going to be many, many people come along and try to find some spiritual significance to the number of 153. And I've had to break through, and I will tell you the significance of 153. It means there were 153 fish. (laughs) That's it. It's a huge number. And that is, I think, the significance there is that the Lord has supplied them to the max anymore, and the net probably would not have been able to hold them And again, we see an underlying theme in this of the provision of God for the nourishment of the disciples, that it is sufficient, it is abundant, it, it speaks of his grace. And the same is true for us as believers. God has given us that which we need to sustain us spiritually. And that is the role of the apostle in carrying out the Great Commission, we don't have that stated in that way in this uh, at the end here as in Matthew, which we'll get to next week. But when Jesus appeared to the disciples the, the first time, he told them that he was going to uh, send them out. And so this was probably a constant theme during his uh, post-resurrection appearances, that this is the mission that you have as Luke puts it in Acts, to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost part of the world. So there is a sufficient provision, and that is what we should trust in. When we come to whatever situation we have in life where we wonder about the, the, what we need to sustain our lives. Remember, God is always going to give us what we need to carry out his mission for our lives. But the problem that we may be experiencing is because maybe we don't have his mission as our priority. And so what God is not providing for us is to get our attention so that we will focus on his mission for our life and not our mission. Our, his mission for our life has nothing to do with your education, uh, your, that is, your formal education. It doesn't have anything to do with your career. It has to do with how God uses those things in order to give you and me opportunities to fulfill the real purpose that we're here, and that is to... Uh, give people the gospel to witness and to be a testimony to God's grace, not only in salvation, but also in the spiritual life. So we're told Jesus tells them, come and eat breakfast. 
Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord, Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is the point of this episode, is that Jesus is feeding the disciples. That then sets the framework for the conversation that's going to come up in verses 15 down through 17. Okay, so let's look at the main teaching that comes out of this. In John 21, uh, 15. This is a situation where Jesus is going to have a repetitive conversation with John. If you read it, I mean with Peter, if you read it in the Greek, I mean in the English, you're going to miss a lot. When Jesus is talking here, he uses uh, four pairs of synonyms. Now, to me, the sad thing that I see in trends of exegesis today and in interpretation of the passage is very few people who think that these synonyms are significant. In English... One of the characteristics of good writing is that you don't repeat certain words within the context. You have to vary your vocabulary. If you don't vary your vocabulary, then you're considered to be not a very good writer. But in the Bible, a lot of times the Holy Spirit uh, uses the same word over and over and over again. What you'll find is that exegetes will say, well... You know, when they translate it into English, they will translate the same word four or five different ways. You get the reverse problem here. They don't, they can't quite grasp what is going on here with these different sets of synonyms. And so now they will say this is just stylistic variation. Well, when I come to the Bible and I'm doing my Bible study and I start seeing something like this going on, the first thing that comes to my mind is, why is the Holy Spirit doing this? What's significant about these word changes? What is the, how are we to understand uh, the shift in these synonyms? They seem like they're very close together in in their meaning, but maybe the Holy Spirit is leading the writers to use these synonyms to bring out different significant points. And I believe that if we believe that every word of Scripture is inspired by God, every jot and tittle which affects the forms of the word, the verb forms, whether it's a past tense or future tense, whether it's passive or active or middle voice, that even if it's the same word, these variations uh, become important. And then when we look at a passage like this where there are these different synonyms that are are there, that we have to understand what that means. So when we read the passage, when Jesus begins with his first question, Simon, son of John, or Simon Barjona, Do you love me more than these? He uses the word agape. We'll get into the details a little bit more. But when Peter responds and says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, he uses a different word. He uses phileo. He doesn't respond, Lord, you asked me if I agape you, and he responds by saying, I phileo you. Why doesn't Peter respond with the same verb? And so then Jesus doesn't correct him right away, But he makes a point, he says, tend my lambs. Now, the word tend here is a different word than the one you'll find in the next uh, statements where Jesus gives the command to feed my sheep. Tending and feeding are synonyms in English, and the words that are used in the Greek are, are synonyms. They're not the same. And then you have the word for lambs versus sheep young lambs versus more mature animals. So what is going on uh, in this passage? In the second exchange, 
Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Ask him the same question, do you agape me? And, and Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And now Jesus gives a different statement. He says, shepherd my sheep. So he shifts from tend to shepherd and from lambs to sheep. And then in the third exchange, he now Jesus changes his verb, and he says, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Peter's greed because he said to him the third time, Lord, I've answered this. You just keep asking me the same question. What do you, what do you really want here? And so he says to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he uses two different words for know here. See how fun this is? You've got to figure out why. What? It's not just that there's one set of synonyms, because that's what you'll get from a lot of people, is, is, and that's what I've heard before when I had heard this taught that emphasized the difference between the two words for love, but there's four different sets of synonyms. This ought to wake people up and say, there's something, I don't know any other passage in Scripture that does this kind of, of uh has this kind of use of synonyms where there's four different ones used so so close together back and forth. So obviously something's going on here. So what we've learned in our study together over the years is that there's two key elements for interpretation. One is context and the other is words. Words have meaning, and when you change from one word to another, there's always some little shift of difference. But we have to come to understand uh, something about uh, the context. And we can't really understand all that is going on in a passage if we don't really have a grasp of the context. And this you have to have the broad context of the message of John, John's gospel, as well as the slightly narrow context. That's which has been going on since John 13 and the even narrower context of what we've seen already in the first uh, 14 verses of the passage. We have to look at key words, and in this passage, the key words all relate to synonyms. So as I just pointed out, we've got the overall context, the immediate context, and then the third context is the context of a dispensational shift. We're moving from the era of the focus on Israel and the role of the priests and the Torah to the church age and the leadership of the apostles and the message of the gospel to all people, Jew and Gentile, that is emphasized in uh, the epistles of the New Testament. Now, when we look at John as the gospel, there are two major themes that we have to take into account when we look at uh, the gospel of John. The first is the message of life. We look at this word life all the way through John, and it's used again and again and again. And, for example, in John chapter uh, 20, verses uh, 20 to 31, we see this, uh, or actually, John 20, that should be 30 to 31, that's a typo there, we see that, that if we believe Jesus is the Christ, then we have life in, in his name, okay? We have life. This is eternal life. This is talking about unending life. This is a, when we die physically, we're absent from the body, we're face-to-face with the, with the Lord, and we have life eternal. But then there is a second emphasis on life in John, and that is on what we call the abundant life, life abundant, the Christian life, the post-salvation life of the believer as we grow to spiritual maturity. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, that's phase one, justification by faith alone, and that they may have it more abundantly. That is phase two. That is sanctification. So John's gospel focuses on both of these aspects, how you know that you have eternal life so that when you die, you go to heaven, and how you can sustain and mature and nourish that new life that you have in Christ. And so that that becomes uh, the focus. And so this will become the focus in this episode because the feeding here, the sustenance of the disciples is used to teach the importance of feeding the sheep and tending the sheep. 
So we see from the surrounding context of John that the believer must be consistently and frequently fed to be properly nourished and to grow spiritually. Doesn't matter how much money you have, doesn't matter what house you live in, it doesn't matter the status symbols that you have. Think about eternity. How long does eternity last? Compared to eternity, this life is is less than a drop in all of the oceans. Yet we spend so much of our time focused on taking care of ourselves and creating the kind of environment around us that, that we want to provide for our comfort and our security, that we are not nourishing ourselves for the long game. And the long game is really, really long. We spend all of our time on the short game. Now, it's important, especially if you're going hungry or you can't pay your bills or things of that nature, to have uh, the immediate needs taken care of. But we get so wrapped up in taking care of the immediate needs and solving the immediate problems that we're not spending time on the long game and providing for our long-term needs. So that's what is being emphasized here, is the role of the apostle to those he will disciple and the role of the pastors that subsequently follow through the centuries is to nourish the sheep so that they can grow spiritually. Second, it is the growing and maturing believer that is going to be characterized by love for other believers. You see, the key word that we find in John chapter 13 through 21 in this context comes out of Jesus' new commandment that we've been studying about on on Thursday night is love. The new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Notice he doesn't say, everybody's going to know you're my disciple because of your control of theology. He doesn't say, everybody's going to know that you're my disciple because you can unscrew the inscrutable. Nobody's going to know you're the disciple because even you, you, you've memorized so much scripture and you can, you can uh, read it off off the top of your head. All of those are maybe important, but the bottom line, and this is what we were covering this last Thursday night, if Paul's saying that if I have all these gifts and all knowledge and all prophecy, and if I have enough faith to move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Love is the central foundational virtue that is developed in us as a fruit of the Spirit that is foundational. And if we're not doing that, it doesn't matter what else we do. we do in life. It's not going to count in terms of our spiritual growth and eternity. Remember, love is the first virtue mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit. So there's this emphasis here, and we see in John 13 that the verse, first verse in John 13:1 states, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, because he knew that his hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Twice we have forms of agapao here. And this sets the the, the stage of what will be the undergirding doctrine that is emphasized in the subsequent chapters. And as we go through this, we see this emphasis in love in that basic commandment in John, uh, John 13, 34, and 35. Let me give you an idea of the proportion and emphasis that we have uh, on love in John. The verb agapao is used in John seven to- only seven times before chapter 13. But from 13 to 16, it's used 20 times. And if you analyze the differences... What we have, its usage before is not always in relation to the spiritual life or the uh, or God's love. It mostly is, but there's other examples of people loving different things. So we see that there's an emphasis from 13 to 16 on agapao. 
And we see that there is the relationship uh, also of, on the not only the verb, uh, but also we have it uh, on on the noun. The noun is used uh, seven times in this section, but it's only used once before chapter 13. Love is a major theme, but it's not used at all in 17 to 20. Now, I wonder why that could be. Think about it. John 17 is called Jesus' high priestly prayer. He is exemplifying love for the believer as he is praying for the believer to the Father in John 17. In John 18 and 19, what is Jesus doing? What is the command? That you are to love one another as I have loved you. 19, uh, 18 and 19 is focusing on Christ's love for us being going through his uh, arrest and crucifixion. So the, the reason you don't see the word used after, after 16 is because 17, 18, and 19 are depicting what that love is that is to be the basis for our love for one another. And then when we get to chapter 21, of course, we have it in this section. Phileo is used 13 times, only four times before chapter 13, so that means eight times after chapter 13. And the noun is used uh, six times total, two times before chapter 13 and four times after. So that tells us that the emphasis that we have here in this, in this latter part is, is on love. And so Jesus has says certain things about, about love. In John 15, 9, he says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. That's fellowship. That is the basis for developing our impersonal love for others, our unconditional love for others, is that we are abiding in the Father's love. That's what comes first. That's why when we've organized this spiritual skills, it's that personal love for God the Father that precedes impersonal or unconditional love for others. The reason we use that word impersonal is because it doesn't necessitate a personal relationship. It's not that it's cold or unfeeling or anything like that. It's that when that person cuts you off on the freeway, you don't know who he is. You don't know if it's male or female. You don't know what race they are. You just have to respond to them in love. Uh, the person at the other end of the line in a customer service call when you're all frustrated about your computer not working. Uh, you don't know who they are. It's, imper- it's impersonal. You don't know the person. That's why that word is used. Uh, it's unconditional in that it is based not on how they respond or react to us, but it's based upon God's character. John 15:12. this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. The pattern is Christ's love for us. And this is exemplified in his substitutionary death on the cross. John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his friends. But what's the criteria for this? How do we know if we have love for God? It is obedience to the word. John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You can't love God if you don't know his word, because you have to know his word and the commandments, the mandates, the prohibitions. We're not talking about the Torah. We're talking about the commandments in the New Testament. If you don't know them, you can't obey them. If you're not obeying them, you're not loving God. That's the measure of our love for God. John fourteen twenty three, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If you don't know his word, you can't keep it. If you don't keep it, you're not loving God. So that is why the, there's such a priority in the scripture in knowing the word of God. John fourteen twenty one. he who does not love me does not keep my words. So if you're not keeping God's words, you're not loving God. That doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means you're not going anywhere in your spiritual life. 
John 14.31, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Jesus exhibited his love for the Father by keeping God's command for him. John 15.10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my word. That's fellowship, ongoing rapport with God. When we break the, disobey the word or break the commandments, then we're out of fellowship. We're not abiding in Christ anymore. So, then Jesus gets to the real significant part of the of the statement as we look at at this um, the statement here. He says, "If you love me, then feed my lambs." So, the command to Peter is to love Jesus. When he loves, Je- if we love Jesus, what's, what are we going to do? We're going to obey the command. What is the command that's emphasized in these verses? Feed my lambs. What we'll see here in the synonyms is a lamb is a baby believer. So we have to nourish and feed the babies. We have to feed the sheep, that is the maturing believers, the older believers. Too many churches aim everything at the baby believer, and they don't provide anything for the older believer. I learned a long time ago when I went through education, if the professor was teaching a little over my head, then I would lift, you know, I would kind of reach up to be able to understand it. But if a professor is teaching at a really simplified level, then, I don't know about you, but I get pretty bored. I want something that challenges my thinking and my understanding. So if you target your teaching so that you are nourishing the maturing believers in the congregation, there's a lot of food there for the babies. They'll get a lot. Some of it they they don't get. That's okay. They set that aside and move forward. What Jesus says here is that the role of the apostle, the role of the pastor, is to feed the sheep. Well, wait a minute. That's not what's going on in a lot of churches today. In a lot of churches, what we have today is the idea that it's the role of the pastor to build a large congregation and an enormous ministry, have multiple congregations around the city, that it is the pastor's job and he's treated as the CEO and he is the one who is to build the church. But that's not what Jesus said. In Matthew 16, 18, we have this interchange between again between Jesus and Peter. And he says to Peter, he said, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, I don't want to get into the other details of the interpretation here. I just want to focus on the one phrase, Who builds the church? It's not the pastor. It's not the evangelist. It is Jesus who builds the church. It is the pastor who is to feed the sheep. But what we have today is pastors usurping Jesus' role and trying to build the church and delegating the feeding of the sheep to untrained amateurs in Sunday school. And so the sheep aren't getting fed, and the church is growing superficially in numbers but not spiritually in reality. The focus is on the word. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen says, Your words were found, and I ate them. That means to take it in and internalize it. And your word was to me joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Old Testament, New Testament, it's the word of God that nourishes and feeds the believer. Peter got the point. Peter got the point. In 1 Peter 2.2, he says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. We have to grow by the word. We don't grow by what we sing. We don't grow by being involved in programs. We grow by internalizing the word. 2 Peter 3.18, he closes out his second epistle and he says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you grow. You don't grow any other way. And trust me, if you think that you can get nourishment 
by having a spiritual meal one hour a week, you're fooling yourself and you're playing games with God. Because you're in the world all the rest of the time being bombarded by the brainwashing methods of Satan over and over and over again. And if you think you can resist that by spending 30 minutes or 45 minutes a week at church, you're just playing games. It's not going to happen. We need to absolutely overwhelm our thinking with the Word of God. Now, we have jobs to do. We have all these other things that we have to do. But we have to carve out time every single day to be washed by the water of the Word. That's the only way we're ultimately going to to grow and mature. Now, when we look at this passage, we have these four pairs of synonyms. We have love, agapao, and phileo. We have no, oida, and gnosko. We have feed or tend, poimino and bosco, and sheep or lambs, arneon, and oh, I didn't get that last word, word change. Sorry about that. Okay, love. We'll look at these terms. See, when you talk about synonyms, you have one word has this field of meaning. The other word has this field of meaning. They overlap. But just because a, there's a lot of overlap between two words, it's the area where they don't overlap that is being emphasized. So that one word, for example, in the yellow circle, if it's in the yellow that's not being touched by the green, then that's a different meaning. You can have a word on the far end of the green circle that has a totally different sense than the far end of the yellow circle, but at some point the words overlap. And that's part of what we get with um, with some of these words. Uh, with agapao, there's this kind of overlap with phileo, but phileo in many cases has a more intense, passionate, personal love for someone. But love, agape, may include that, but it also focuses on uh, where there's not that intense personal uh, relationship. Sometimes you have other words like poimino, which means to has everything to do with what you're doing to take care of a sheep. And bosco is like the green circle. It's just focusing on feeding the sheep, which is one aspect of what a shepherd does in leading and providing for the sheep. And then sometimes there's just very little in common, but that's maybe what's being emphasized. So let's quickly go through this. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he, that is Peter, said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lamb. So if we expand this out to get the sense of it, Simon, do you love me more than these others? In other words, do you love me more than these others? Because earlier, remember, Simon's the one who says, I'll never desert you, all of this. He's, it is an implication here where Jesus is, is, is checking his arrogance factor. Are you still claiming you're better than all of the others? Remember, it was, it was, uh, uh Peter and James and John that are, that are trying, vying to see who's going to sit closest to the Lord in the kingdom. So, Simon, do you love me more than these? In other words, have you learned the lesson of humility yet? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know from your omniscience. See, here's that word oida. Oida has to do with that, that, that knowledge that would be intuitive or the knowledge that Jesus has in his deity as omniscience. You know, that is from your omniscience, that I now have an intimate, intense love for you. He, remember, he's been forgiven at this point. So he's going a step further, and he's saying, I have this intimate, intense love for you now that I've been forgiven and understand what grace is all about. And so Jesus says, feed my little lambs. That's the idea here. Is It's Bosco. It's feeding. You know, there, it's not poimino yet. It's just feeding. Just nourish the little lambs, the babes, the, the spiritual infants. John twenty one sixteen. he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I loved you. And now Jesus says, shepherd my sheep. So you, first you feed the babies. Now you're going to lead and direct the more mature. Verse 16, 
He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you have agape love for me? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know from your omniscience I have an intense, intimate love for you. He's really emphasizing his intense, intimate love for the Lord. And so Jesus said to him, lead my sheep through the teaching of, of doctrine, through the teaching of your word. Peter learns this lesson. In 1 Peter 5, 2, and 3, as he's talking to the leaders of the church that he's addressing, he says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. There's poimeno. It has to do with leading through the teaching of the word. So then he says a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. But this time when Jesus spoke to him, now he changed, Jesus uses phileo. He says, Simon, son of John, do you really have this intimate, intense love for me? And Peter is grieved, and he says the third time, uh, that he said this the third time, do you love me? And then Peter replies and said, Lord, you know all things. And he uses the word oida, which indicates omniscience. You know all of this in your omniscience. And then he says, not only that, you know, and he shifts to gnosko, which means something you learned from experience. You've learned from experience because you've seen with your own eyes my response to your forgiveness and the change in me because of the resurrection. So now he, when he shifts, he says, you, not only do you know everything, but you've seen it. You've seen my change since you forgave me. And then Jesus says, Peter, Peter goes back to Bosco, feed my, all my sheep. That is a word that you, entails all of the sheep, the mature ones, to the, to the babies. This is the responsibility of the church. So Peter learns this, Second Peter 3.18, we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. You grow by the basis of knowledge. That's how you're fed. This comes through pastors and teachers. Paul says in, Philipp, in Ephesians 4.11 that we're given the gift of pastors and teachers. And what are they to do? They're to equip the saints for the work of the service, the ministry. Evangelists are not given to go evangelize, although that may be a secondary aspect of their gift. Their primary purpose of their gift is to equip other believers to go witness. We saw that with... Gene Brown many times and, and learning from him and having some workshops on evangelism. That's the biblical way of using an evangelist. Acts 2.42, what happens in the early church? They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The importance of teaching. Are you devoted to the teaching of God's Word? Is that a priority in your life? If I look at how you spend your time, are you spending your time making a priority of the study of the Word and internalizing it? The result of this is wisdom. You're not tossed to and fro by waves of doctrine or the trickery of men. So, the action items in evangelism, or in ministry rather, we teach so that the result is evangelism, prayer, service, giving, encouragement, and teaching. That's all part of ministry. But the foundation is being nourished on the Word, without which there's no growth. Without which, and you don't just nibble, you have to sit down and eat solid, nourishing meals where you really learn the Word of God. This has to be the priority. It is, if it's the priority for the pastor, for the apostle, then the pri- priority for those who, are, who he's teaching is to spend time eating the food. My priority is to feed the sheep. Your job is to eat the meal. And apply it. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of the priority of your word and to focus on your word, and that it is through your word that that we grow and mature. We come to understand who you are and who we are. We come to understand our mission in life, and we get the tools, the equipping that we need, so that we are able then to fulfill the mission that you've given to every believer in terms of witnessing and encouraging others to grow and mature in the body of Christ. Father, we pray that those who are here, those who are listening, either live or later, that that if there's anyone who's unsure of their salvation 
are uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make it both sure and certain. It is only one, there's only one condition, that is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The instant we believe, as, as Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? The instant we believe, we're given eternal life, we're given Christ's righteousness, and we are brought into the eternal family of God, and we can never lose that salvation. So, Father, we pray that those listening, that those who want to know you, those who want to live eternally, will respond by faith in Jesus Christ. And for the rest of us, that we would come to understand that our mission is to grow and mature, and we do that through the study of your word, and that we need to make that a priority. We need to rethink how we spend our time and our talent and our treasure so that the focal point will be on our spiritual growth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.